I'm Caleb Rowe, and this is the Air of Grievances podcast. Today's episode is very special to me. I got to do an interview with my father, Gregory Rowe, um, who is a very, very big influence in my life, especially in my spiritual life. He's a retired military man. Uh, He went to West Point Military Academy, and he was an officer, went all the way up to captain uh, in the U.S. Army. And uh, so up until the age of four, he actually wasn't really in my life at all, uh, just because he would be in the field, he would be doing training, stationed in Germany. And so it was just me and my mom kind of cooped up in a house in Germany up until I was the age of four years old. But after that point, my dad was always very, very involved in my life, very loving, uh, very understanding. And I've always felt that I could be completely honest with him. And so I want to give him a big thanks for doing this interview and just for being an awesome dad. here with my father, Gregory Rowe, hey. and uh, we're just going to do a casual interview here and get to know him a little bit, um, and some of the theology and ideas that helped to shape him that in turn helped to shape the way that I think. So, Dad, welcome, and thanks for being on the show. Thank you. So glad to be included. Awesome. Uh, so, yeah, first, I guess we can just start at the beginning. What was your upbringing like? How would you describe it? So, as a middle of five children in a very secure family in northern Minnesota. Dad was a doctor, mom was a nurse. They were together for their entire lives. So uh, I just had this great assumption that everybody stuck together and was committed throughout their entire existence. And sometimes I have come to realize that's not how it is. Mm. That was all that you saw, and so you you assumed that's how everybody was. Yeah, definitely. I guess I was sheltered. Mm. gratefully sheltered from some of the harder elements of life until I moved on later. Okay. And what was the theology like? What was your religious upbringing like? Okay. Yeah, we were great, devout Baptists of the General Baptist Conference. I'm very grateful for my Sunday school teachers who made sure I understood where to go to find scripture in various contexts and by the time I was a teenager, I had read the Bible cover to cover four times. Wow. Yeah, and it's like, it just was my foundation. It's what gave me peace. Mm. Um, mm. Later I came to understand, yeah, I've got anxiety issues, and my way of dealing with it as a child was to go to something solid, mm. and that's what mm. I found in Scripture. So it was, I don't want to say a security blanket, because it almost sounds demeaning, but it was a foundation that was clear-cut and secure. Yeah, and I'm totally fine with folks who say that it's my crutch. Yeah, I need a crutch. I'm totally willing to accept that I'm insecure in and of myself, given my humanity, and so I turn to something solid, and that's what it is. So would you say that you lean more towards inerrancy as far as the Bible goes? Oh, yeah, and I don't even know the right words, but the Bible is so solid it's been through so many different filters. Yeah, you know, if you just said 
hey, I wrote something today, and someone else looked at it, and they said, well, that's garbage. You know, the Bible refers to Scripture has been purified seven times. I think what they're saying is it's been through enough editing that, in my experience, it's just gotten to a point that you can rely that it's accurate and worth listening to. Mm. Just from my own personal understanding, because I have this drive to where my desire is to get back to the root of the original text um, before all the editing and stuff yeah. like that. And you refer to the editing as a purification, and I find that very interesting. Can you kind of expand on that a little well, bit? Yeah, totally. So there's good editing and there's bad editing. And I suppose bad editing would be me changing a word that made it more meaningful for my use. Um, and yeah, monks along the way may have done what we consider scribe error. Mm. That's totally different from what I'm saying, which is you and I, two people, iron sharpens iron. Mm -hmm. And I go, oh, yeah, I didn't even know what I was saying until we bounced it around and came to something more pure, as I would say. Mm, okay. So you'd say that it, maybe in its original context, could have been not put together as well? Oh, yeah. And here's where I'm going to show my uh, lack of education, I suppose, from... My hermeneutic study, which you look at the context, you look at the elements of the culture at the time, and through all that, somehow you arrive at the truth. So what I'm referring to is the end result of all of us getting together and say, you know what, that's true. Mm, okay, so... Would you say you put weight in observable truth? Like if something in the Bible doesn't necessarily add up in what you're observing, would you put more water in the observations that you're making that seem to make more sense? Or would you say we're just misreading the Bible and, and the Bible has the true answer here? If d Does that make sense? Or maybe I should oh, yeah. That. No, I, I think I hear you saying because, sir, we read something and we go, you know, that doesn't sound right. And there's some... Um, place where we need to stop and say something went wrong mm. in the delivery of this message. Mm, okay, okay. Right? So, yeah, absolutely. There, there are errors in translation, mm -hmm. and we, we we need to go back and say, well, that doesn't doesn't seem right. So we got to question it. Growing up, did you ever did you ever question? Did you ever doubt your faith at all, or uh, any elements of your faith? Wow, good question. Um, so, or did you think, allow yourself to question and doubt? Yeah, because uh, everyone uh, doubts, everyone questions. Uh, yeah, so definitely. I mean, it, my experience is that life is not pleasant. So, if I said, you know, God, why do you let me go through all this? It's messy. It's ugly. That's different than me sitting down in a quiet place and meditating and hearing mm -hmm. what I feel is God speaking to me through written word. And so, yeah, there's interesting dynamic, I think, that you're referring to, that each of us has God in us, you know, whether it's that still small voice or, you know, that flame inside our souls mm, that mm. God's planted there. Mm. And I think we need to trust that. Mm, okay. And, yeah. and then also look to others where we, I think we all have blind spots. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I get to a place where, I don't understand it. Well, I should throw it out. Eh, wrong answer. <laughs> don't just throw it out. 
consider maybe you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's a really good uh, take on it. Yeah. So after Minnesota, after your childhood, you went to West Point. Did that have any effect on your worldview or on your faith or anything? Oh, yeah, that's good. So every Sunday, we had a few moments of peace <laughs> as cadets. And I loved going up to the cadet chapel. It was just a, a beautiful place to meditate and, and, and be away from all the regulation and requirements of the week. So, yeah. Yeah, talk about a, a rule-based environment. Oh. <laughs> it, I, it, I, I refer to it as a love-hate relationship. Uh-huh. It, it's all about the rules six days a week. We went to class on Saturday. It was You were totally enmeshed, and you had to do exactly what's expected. Uh, or or no longer be there. Mm. And then on Sunday, you wake up and you got some time to think. Uh-huh. Would you say you prefer that structure? I know that you referred to the Bible as being, what was the phrase that you used? Your crutch. Yeah. Because it's a foundation, it's an unchanging thing that you can go back to. Would you parallel that to your experience at West Point to having that structure? Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that. You're right. So my mind works randomly and goes easily off, I mean, if there were a path we called reality and how we relate to other people, I can quickly wander into the weeds. Mm. And so, yeah, I need guidance or something solid. I need reality. Yeah. Uh, reality checks. Man, that's what I need. I need reality checks. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah? Makes sense. So moving, I guess, kind of into um, my childhood and my memories of you, I know you were a a Sunday school teacher. How did you come about being a Sunday school teacher? I I believe (laughs) at the time it was a non-denominational church. Was that the first? Oh, right. So I was considered the youth pastor at a, it was Foursquare, but they tried to be a community church, non-denominational. Is Foursquare a denomination? It is. Is it? Okay, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, so that was kind of an interesting point where I was coming to understand how do we communicate to young people what we believe and what they believe and how we could help them with what they believe. Mm. Then after that, I went back to the Baptists and uh, we had the fifth grade Sunday school class. Right. Right? Uh My most vivid memories are of parables, essentially, that you would make up stories that you would make up to illustrate biblical principles or biblical points, almost like how Veggie Tales would take a story from the Bible and, and mm. make it kind of more bite-sized and, you know, draw parallels and things like that. And you created a little world you called Suki Land. What's the root of the word Suki? Yeah, Suki is soul in the Greek. It's so funny you mention that because I, uh, it kind of chokes me up that that was useful to you, right? Because I'm very visual and how I see things. So I would draw little pictures to say, here's an upside down soul. And I'd try draw the mouth at the top and the eyes at the bottom and uh-huh, say, here's someone who, who's in touch with reality, uh-huh. yeah, with truth in Christ. And so that helps me. And, you know, it really, I, I tell you, if anything was good from that, I remember one of your friends um, saying, oh, yeah, that's my life. And what we later learned he was referring to is he would go home, and I talked about a vacuum. You walk into an environment, and it's like there's a vacuum, and everybody's sucked mm-hmm. onto the roof, and they're upside down. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Your illustrations. And, yeah. and so your friend said, that's me, and I had no idea. And then later we found out his father was in an adulterous relationship. Yeah. The marriage broke up. You know, it just took me up to think, you know, he, he saw a connection between this illustration 
and real life. Mm. Yeah, and those are very, very effective. And it speaks to the fact that Christ taught through parables. A lot of times he'd be asked a direct question, and instead of providing a direct answer, he would, you know, go mm. off on a parable that <laughs> seemed a lot of times to the listener to be completely unrelated. Yeah, and that's my life at work. So I'm in IT, and I work with folks who are not technical, and I walk in and start using jargon. They don't get it. So I got to step back and do what you just said and say, okay, imagine that you want to draw a picture. And in that picture, there are going to be all these elements. Suddenly they go, oh, now I see what you mean. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I do find it useful to illustrate mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And when was it that you went to seminary? Right. There we were, Louisville, Kentucky. And... Um, I was in an IT job doing consulting, and I always had people tell me, why aren't you a pastor? And I came to realize, the reason I'm not a pastor is I didn't go that way when I was in college. Mm. And it's a whole career path. Mm-hmm. And so if you're not on that path, you're not going to go and have the right you know, positions. So I decided, you know, I'm going to do night school and follow my heart to mm. learn more great influence for me was Eric Johnson, you know, who... Yes. <laughs> he was a counselor and therapist mm-hmm. who helped me through a lot of my depression, and um, mm-hmm. I, I believe I was still suicidal at that time, and mm-hmm. he was just such a good listener, and though he was a Christian therapist, you know, he was under that label, yeah. um, I don't think that you would necessarily guess it, and he definitely, for me, he broke the mold and kind of opened my eyes to see that not all Christians behave the same way, or not all people who label themselves as Christian or Southern Baptist specifically behave the same way. And I didn't see the turnoffs that I felt towards the church in him. Mm. Uh, I didn't see the fakeness. I didn't see the plastic smile, the everything's going to be fine because of the Bible, period. Mm. You know, he lived in the real world and was very reactive and, and a really good listener. Oh, he's amazing. Yeah, to me, he's one of the few men in my life who I say, wow, I've never seen him do anything that does not reflect Christ, mm. does not reflect the ideal of how a person should be. And so he's been in, essentially rejected by the establishment. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So when I say establishment, I'm referring back to Christ was rejected by the establishment Mm. of his time, the religious establishment. So in the same way, any time you pay people full time to be in charge of an organization, they're going to look in the best interest of that organization, which, by the way, is not always the best interest of everybody else and and, and God himself. And I'm so really thankful that Eric has always been true to both himself and to the truth he understands in God to say, you know, I'm not going to hold to some construct in a human institution Mm, mm. that dictates doctrine. Yes. I'm going to sometimes conflict with the establishment, and he was willing to do that. And that's where he is now, and he's being taken care of, but he really had to sacrifice his career, as many of us must do to follow Christ, is to pick up a cross And the cross is, I'm going to follow the truth, not what people tell me to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I find it very interesting, too, that he is now uh, aligned with the emergent church. Mm, Yeah, (laughs) that's so irony of ironies. Yeah, it tells us 
there's a greater theme. There's a, there is a God behind all the historical events going on because somehow it comes together and so people think they came up with the original idea and they all come with the same original idea at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, there's a movement. Uh-huh. I'm excited about that. It's yes. a huge movement and I'm a closet heretic. Yes. Know, I've always questioned church doctrine, mm-hmm. but as a deacon in the Baptist church, I won't right. come out during a meeting and go, oh, I think, you know, grace and works maybe are like oil and vinegar. Mm. Yeah, they are self-contradictory. I, I see. Okay. You can't put them together. They have to be considered separately. But yeah, everybody wants a one-dimensional view of the world, and the yeah. world is not one-dimensional. It's multi-dimensions, maybe seven, eight, nine, ten dimensions all going on at once. Yeah, and maybe even <laughs> shifting dimensions, yeah. changing dimensions. Uh, yeah, and at, at one particular time, maybe this dimension is truth. And a moment later, this dimension is truth. Mm, wow. <laughs> yeah. When you went to Southern Baptist Seminary, isn't it true that your favorite professors were the ones that got kicked out? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I, it tells me I'm, I'm destined to never be a great member of that church. Uh, to be able to question authority rightfully, respectfully, is something I respect. Mm. So, who were some of those professors in seminary who, if you're not comfortable listing names, that's fine, but what what were some of the ideas that they taught that conflicted with the teachings of the Southern Baptist Seminary? Yeah, of course, Eric Johnson mentioned Robert Stein. He is part of the establishment, and the great thing is, so he was a general Baptist, Northern Baptist, then he went to a Southern Baptist Seminary. My favorite phrase from him was, don't lean heavily on the metaphor mm. or on poetic language. Yes. Mm-hmm. So the Bible's full of poetic language, and people go, well, that's not scientific. No, it's poetry. So, mm, yes. And, and it's interesting that the folks I know who are great theologians tend to move toward two extremes on a pendulum. One is those who are anti theist, essentially, you know, kind of the German school. There is no God, but they teach at seminary. I don't get that. And on the other extreme, that we don't know everything. Mm. So we accept that there is truth, even if we don't know it. Yes. But God is still good. God is still in authority. This is like a, almost a mystic sort of approach. Yeah, exactly. You got materialist, what I see is true, and uh, philosophical mysterianism, which is I don't see everything, but it's still true. Mm. Do you think that it's possible at all that atheism could be, you know, and it's it's a relatively new movement, um, do you think that it could be edifying for the church at all? Wow, that would be so cool to go to a church and say, hey, join our small group to talk about atheism, and, you know, all atheists welcome. From my perspective, atheists are kind of holding up a mirror to Christianity mm. saying, hey, this stuff that you're saying doesn't make sense. Mm. And to plug your ears and say, la, 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 I can't hear you, I think is an unhealthy reaction. I think that listening and, and hearing them out can be very edifying and result in a stronger faith and maybe even reevaluating and reexamining things that don't make sense to the outside world. Yeah, and there's where I just lean back on leadership training, which is your critics are your best advisors. Mm. They see you in a way you don't see yourself. Right. That's why they're criticizing. Sure, 
some of the criticism is way off the scale because they just don't like you. But, you know, you filter it out and go to, okay, you know what? They're right about this. Yes. We say inerrancy. Well, yeah, there's this um, some kind of correction that needs to be made in the script. And that's okay, but is it really essential? Right. It's kind of like the spirit of the law being inerrant. Oh, yeah. Maybe. Yeah, and with you there. And and so even in law, right, so as a graduate of a uh, liberal arts institution, the United States Military Academy, we had to learn there's the law de facto and the law de jure. Law de facto being, here's what people really enforce, or it really seems to matter. And here's the the law de jure, what is written. Mm. And then the third, probably, is what you said, the spirit of it. The reason for the rule, and then the rule. Right. To me, a big thing, a big filter that I've come to take on is I'm all for the Bible, and I see it as inerrant with an asterisk, but... If something doesn't make sense to me, I'm not going to stifle my questions and just kind of swallow the pill. Uh, Whereas that was my mindset. Mm -hmm. Um, I used to externalize that and say, oh, they made me like this. But now I take full responsibility and recognize that it was my own interpretations, a lot of it in my own head even. But I was under the impression that if I even allowed myself to entertain a question or a doubt about something that didn't make sense, Mm. that I was damned, that I I was going to go to hell. Uh. And now my primary filter is, does it make sense? Mm. And if a part of the Bible doesn't make sense, that doesn't mean like, you know, throw the whole thing out. And it also maybe doesn't necessarily mean that I'm reading it wrong. It can mean a a myriad of things that cultural elements factor into, uh, that translation elements factor into, the fact that it's translated from a dead language and from a culture that is so far removed in time and space from us. But I feel a communion with God. That's my primary filter. Where And I feel like that, for me, is on the pedestal where a lot of Christians put the Bible. Hmm. What you just said fascinates me at a number of levels. First of all, I remember being asked to substitute, lead a group at a King James-only church. And so we had to have the participants read directly from King James. And there was this young lady who read, and she said, I have no idea what I just read. Mm, That reminds me of the the, uh, Roman Catholic Church insisting on reading only in Latin. Uh, It's like, I don't know why people do that, but... So I, I had compassion for her in the group. I couldn't say, oh, yeah, it's not King James only because, you know, ancient Greek is not the same as, the, right. you know, medieval use of the English language. It's this absurd <laughs> leap. Yeah. But then you say, okay, so you went through a time where you felt questioning was damnable. Yes. Wow. So what was the span of years Oh, man. Um, Let's see, I'd say as far back as I can remember, you know, first grade or so, up until uh, at least ninth grade, it started to kind of fade in high school, just being exposed to new ideas and stuff like that. And once I went to college, and of course, I swung too far, but I I feel like that was necessary for my development as a person and and spiritually. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it was... 
I mean, at least a decade, mm. I felt that a question would creep into my head. And here's an example of me misinterpreting things and twisting them in my own head. You know, the passage of scripture, if an evil thought comes into your mind, you know, that that's not sinning, but to dwell on it is, it's, it's compares it to a bird landing on your head and you having to shoo it off. So I equated that with doubt. Mm. So if a doubt landed on my head or if a question landed on my head relating to doctrine, not even relating to biblically taught lessons and concepts, I thought that if any doubt landed on my head, I had to shoo it off mm. or else I would be damned and it would build, it would build a nest. And, and it just pains me, listening to that, to know I was an agent for you to be put into a fundamentalist environment for all those years. And I thought they were providing you an opportunity to love the Bible the way I love the Bible. Because I would go to public school and they would be making fun of people who read the Bible. And I'd have to go home and have a different way of looking at the world. So I was helping you, I thought, put you in a place where there's consistency. The Bible's the Bible. But instead, there you were, given the impression that to even think that some passage had multiple, you know, interpretations. Or that a doctrine might not be exactly consistent with the scripture. Yeah, I really had hoped they would encourage and listen and help guide, not stand up on high and dictate for hours on end. I mean, Alex once shared, for hours they had you all in the chapel just demanding that someone come forward and Mm. accept this. And it's like, oh... How could they do that? Yeah. Know? Where's Christ mm. in that? Yeah. And what would Christ say if he walked into that? Oh, well, yeah. I think he'd slap some people or bricks some yeah. tables or something. Uh-huh. Oh. Yeah, especially in his father's house. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to vocalize that I did used to resent the whole system, mm. and I did used to harbor anger and resentment towards it. And I'm still coming out of that, but... I take full responsibility for any interpretation I had and and for not allowing myself to question things. And even though, yeah, I I was a little kid, I still had my own free will and I still had the mental and intellectual capacity to not submit myself to things that didn't make sense to me. And I forgive and I love those people and all I can do is to you know, try to be more Christ-like and to step into that forgiveness and say, you know, they were doing the best that they could. I know for a fact that a lot of the people that taught me those things, you know, that at least gave me the impression that any sort of questioning or any sort of doubt was evil and damnable and abhorrent, were doing so out of good intentions. They genuinely were trying to save my soul from hell, you know, and as misguided and misled as they may have been, they were doing the best that they could with the tools that they had, with the understanding that they had, and I forgive them and I love them. Well, you're very kind to look at the modern Pharisee as someone who's trying their best, right? But there's a certain age at which we are impressed, whether we have a choice or not. I don't know if it's seven or eight years old, you know, I did meant the cross, staffing, and there's a certain point where we own all of our messages, but we don't necessarily own the source of that message. As a child, we have to trust those who are 
taking care of us. Right. And so it's not anyone's intent that the people who, who are doing their best to take care of you deliver the wrong message. You know, so we take on baggage. It's not our doing, I think. And then we also at some point, sure, I can interpret and say, no, you're wrong and reject the teachings that are in fact hurting us. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a long process. I, I don't know if maybe most of our life is cleaning up the mess yeah. you know, that was given to us as a child. Mm. Yeah, and that, that kind of goes back to the title of this podcast, Air of Grievances. And it's kind of tongue-in-cheek because I, I used to externalize and project all my problems and say, oh, all of my grief and all my sins... All my baggage was, you know, given to me, and this is what I was taught, and so I have no responsibility in it. But the reason I, I chose that title is more of a tongue-in-cheek title, saying, yeah, we, we do inherit the baggage and the worldview of our parents or of those who were responsible for our upbringing, of our teachers. But at the same time, just because you're the heir of something doesn't mean that that is your role. You can walk out of the castle. Mm. You know, you don't have to play the part that is handed to you. Is there a place where you make that decision? I'm going to continue the legacy of lies? What do you mean? So, I could decide I'm going to deal with my baggage or I'm going to defend my baggage. Right. And I only ask because it's a challenge for me, too, to look back and go, okay, at this point in time, I started teaching other people to follow what is my baggage. Mm. And then to go back and say, I'm sorry, I taught my baggage. Right. Yeah. Mm. So what's the question in there? Yeah, so the question is, how do we know that we're propagating mm. lies? Right. You know, what do you sense in yourself where you stand up and say, okay, crucify me, but I'm not going to go there. Yeah. I think that comes back to, like I said, my primary filter, my my internal voice, my conscience. Mm. And also when teaching children, saying to the best of my understanding, or always prefacing things by saying, this is how I understand things. Mm. And also prefacing by saying, there are things I don't know. I may be wrong about this. Mm. And... Just to be entirely honest, first with yourself so that you can be honest with Mm. the children that you're having an impact on and with your peers even that you're having an impact on and just being completely open and saying, this is how I feel about it right now. I may wake up tomorrow and feel differently about it. Mm. And I can even trace back through the past year how much my belief system has evolved And I think it's a healthy thing to be constantly evolving. And if you ever look back at yourself two years ago and you're not embarrassed of where you were in life, like I know I used to keep journals and I would look back at the journals and be so embarrassed and destroy them and rip Mm -hmm. them up and be just so embarrassed of my younger self. But now I realize that that is a sign of growth and that growth is essential. And without it, we're stagnant. Wow. Yeah, so traditionally, what you expressed, I see, is there's God-like and Christ-like on one hand, and then there's idolatry, which is to feel we never can question, we never can fail, that this holding up an image 
of perfection that mm. I'm going to hold myself to. And what psychology would say, you got performance anxiety. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what often is taught in institutions. Yes. Performance-based self-worth. That was what led to my, you know, cutting and perpetuated my own depression. Mm. And that's another thing that I'm kind of referring to in the title of the podcast is I could say I have these chemical imbalances that I inherited that it's not my fault. Or I can own it and say, yeah, this is the hand that I was dealt. It is true that I did inherit these things, but... That does not remove responsibility from me and that does not give me right to live an unhealthy lifestyle and it doesn't give me, you know, free reign. Mm. It's almost like there's assigning blame externally and accepting what is and dealing with it. You know, I don't know how I got these internal messages that are telling me I'm worthless, but I'm going to do something about them. Mm. And to me, that's the surgery of the soul that I kind of sort of wish the church would do that, right? Mm. You show up at a church, maybe it's thinking of the church as medical care for the soul. Mm -hmm. You come in, hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. Okay, good. You want, here's some salad. Uh, How you doing? Uh, I'm just, I'm I'm, I'm already committed suicide. Let's go over here. Let's do some surgery because something's totally messed up. So that whole range of, let's, Deal with soul care. Yeah. You know, to use Eric Johnson phrase. Yeah. And do it right. Mm-hmm. And not yeah. just try to deny what is. Yeah. I think the only way that that is possible is through community. Mm. Is not having church be just a once a week thing, an event, mm. but it being a community. Otherwise, how are you going to know when someone is lying to you about how they're doing? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, there are studies, of course, on group sizes. People won't be honest if the group is larger than five or seven people. So, yeah, there's a big movement. Hey, let's have small groups in church. Well, what does that really mean, though? I mean, who are the people you can be honest with? Maybe it's two people, three people for somebody. And as you know, what I do in life for a profession is about organizational development. And here's how we work together to achieve the organization's objectives. And it's kind of sad, I think, that the church doesn't realize there's general revelation that says, here's how God meant people to work with each other, mm. both in the church and in business. It doesn't matter. And here's how it doesn't work. But if we refuse to even learn from general revelation, mm-hmm. and for some reason I keep referring back to Eric Johnson, you know, he was rejected because he didn't accept that Truth can come from both direct revelation, Mm. which is what is written, and general revelation, which is what's discovered. Right. (laughs) Maybe general revelation is a better term for that first filter of mine that I referred to Uh, of of something making sense to me, uh, being observable. Thank you. Uh, If only I'd been aware of that. And I don't know, maybe there is no one who gets what we're saying, you know? Maybe that's what your generation is going to bring forward is there's a place we can go to, call it church, call it school, where we can wrestle with truth, Mm. right? You know, the word Israel means wrestling with truth. Yeah, yeah. And say, yeah, so here's what science shows. What do you think? And not say, oh, that's not in the Bible. Mm. Well, you know, in the Bible it says 
It is the glory of God to conceal a matter and the glory of kings to discern it. Mm. So, God purposely is like playing the wrestling match with us. He's good with yes. wrestling. Yes. And he wants us to shake our fist and yell sometimes. Yes. Yeah. A lot of the Psalms, yeah, is, mm. is David shaking his fist at God and saying, where are you? And even, man, I heard this quote. I wish I could remember. Maybe from Rob Bell or somebody. But there's this quote that says, you know, when Christ was crucified and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm. That's the moment when God became an atheist. Uh-huh. When God felt forsaken by God. Mm. Uh-huh. And since stepping back into Christianity with the new lens that I have, I've had days, and I think probably the longest was maybe uh, almost a week, to where I didn't believe in God. Because I allow myself to question and doubt things, and I honestly, I kind of feel like it's in the tradition of the religion of Judaism and the Judeo-Christian tradition to say, God, where are you? You know, and... Underlying that there is a faith, underlying that there is a trust that all things will work out. And I know that rationally, but emotionally allowing myself to say, God, I don't see you. Where are you? You know, and to embrace the fact that it does not make sense to me right now that God exists. Mm, thank you. That gives me chills. Thanks for quoting that. And it goes back to the oldest book in the Bible, Job, of him shaking his fist and because his friends wouldn't shake their fists, God said, I'm going to destroy your friends unless wow. you tell me not to. Because he needed to shake his fist and go, I will not curse you, yet you're not doing what you said, or yeah. as I understand what you said. And then God came back and said, well, I don't have to do what you think I understood. <laughs> and you're my friend, you know. So it's it's amazing. Yeah, wow. So how how has your own personal theology changed and developed over the years? Oh wow, yeah, I, I, I maybe I, I don't know. I'm not at a real good place, I suppose. Is a cycle upward with some moments of crisis. Yes, and I tell you what, I'm at a place where the church isn't real, <laughs> to be honest. It, it, because, like I told you, there are ministries that really get it, and they say, what do you need? What do you want to work on? What is essentially the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart we yeah. can work with you on? And there are a lot of good dynamics in small groups, but it's not consistent. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, where I'm at is I'm totally okay with questioning, and I'm just amazed to learn from my own children that, yeah, there's more out there, mm. and that you all are going to bring the church to a place where we can be real together mm. and kind of shake the foundations. Oh yeah. So I, yeah, I'm at I'm at a place where I, I don't even know <laughs> where we should be or how to get there. Yeah. And how do you feel about inclusivism versus exclusivism? <laughs> I know that. For example, uh, when Nate was first starting to question his faith, you said, well, you need some sort of spiritual nourishment. Mm. So I'll let you choose the church or the religion even. Mm. You said, you know, you can go to the Buddhist temple if you want, but you Mm. need some sort of spiritual nourishment. And that's a very unconventional approach, especially for a a person raised Southern Baptist Mm. to take. What's your motive there in... What is your hope? I guess what I'm trying to ask is, 
what do you see the value to be in receiving spiritual nourishment generically and generally versus directly Christian nourishment? Mm. Thank you. So each of us is in conflict with ourselves. And I even see it you know, biologically and physically, physiologically. At the base of the brain are the impulses that says, I'll kill anyone for a piece of bread if I'm hungry. Uh, the reptilian area of the brain. And then at the frontal lobe is that which is uniquely human. And I love how you said it. You know, God is man. God is a person. And that means the awareness that we can be altruistic, at least representationally. So anyway, yeah, I think everybody's in conflict with themselves continually. So yeah, I, I would say, you know what? Morally, ethically... I don't want anyone I raise to think that murder is okay. Mm. So, son, daughter, what are you doing to develop yourself morally, ethically? Oh, well, I reject the church. Okay, so what are you doing to Uh develop morally, ethically? So that the altruism that is keeping us all from going around stabbing each other in the back maybe have some hope for humanity. Mm, mm. I don't know if that answers what you're saying. Yeah, um, so you're saying, I'll try to repeat it back to you maybe and see if I understand. It sounds like you're saying that it is better in your mind to have some form of moral code usually received through a religious practice Mm -hmm. than none at all. At the surface level, that sounds kind of inclusivist, saying, you know, whatever religion works for you, but I... I kind of doubt that that is actually what you're saying. Yeah. So, uh, I felt totally safe walking through a dark alley in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia on a Saturday night. I would never wander through a dark alley in New York City on a Saturday night. Mm. That's not saying that anybody around me is morally, ethically pure. That's saying that they would get their hands chopped off or their heads chopped off. So societally, there's a standard that somehow we enforce through policing. Uh, And then individually, then that's where I go. I'm like, why do you think it would be okay or not okay to use a woman? So as a man, you have your needs, you have your drives, and you would like to tell a woman you love her just so you get what you want. Mm. That doesn't sound morally ethically sound to me. And even you know, talking to your brothers, it'd be, no, I, I don't want to do that. Okay, so what is the code by which, or the means or meditation by which you don't go there? Mm. You know, I, I want to challenge anyone who listened to say, how will you keep yourself from being depraved? Mm. Okay. So where does Christ come in then, mm. uh, apart from the morality? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so good. Right. Christ is someone who shows up, looks at you now and go, seriously, do you think that's good? And you go, nah. Yeah. So he's the moral authority who's also a very real person mm. to me. And whatever's written in the law that's the law du jour has no meaning unless you experientially, personally, emotionally connect to it. And that Mm. connection, that ideal, that epitome is, to me, Christ, this real person 
who is God, who is the law, who is love, mm. you know, the epicenter of anything morally and ethically desirable. Mm-hmm. That's what it means to me. And so, would you say that all Buddhists need to convert to Christianity? Ah, there we go. So, I would never look a Buddhist in the eye and go, hey, you're going to be damned and burn in hell. Because some of them are much more morally, ethically sound than Christians I know who mm. verbalize what I just said, but may not sense it. And I really believe there is one truth. Mm. And anyone who moves toward truth is going to arrive at Christ. Mm-hmm. In uh, name? No, no. Name, words to me don't matter. Mm-hmm. And so... In Christianity, there's a school of thought that you need Jesus specifically, mm. uh, that, that you need the incarnation. Mm. And, of course, that raises the question, what about the Jews before Christ came? Oh, mm. well, they had the sacrifices that pointed to Christ. But no, you said they needed Jesus specifically. And so, if Christ is an archetype of love and altruism, in your mind, in your universe, and I'm not really sure how I feel about the afterlife and things like that, but... In your mind, is it possible for salvation, eternal life, for someone who does not know Christ by name, but knows love by name, who knows altruism by name? Well, here's where I suppose I'm starting to become a heretic, because I believe that everyone is judged equally. God is good. God is true. God is just. If they've never heard a particular name, I believe there's a judgment day. And and I suspect that would be at the moment of death, boom, you see this picture. And you either are drawn toward it or you push away from it. To me, the picture is Christ. You either mm-hmm. accept Christ as you are as a person or you reject Christ as you are as a person. Mm-hmm. And that's my way of saying it. I'm not suggesting that everybody would say it that way. But I, I definitely know some Buddhists who I think are the Best Christians I've ever met. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like you've you've really progressed a lot, and you're very very open minded for being grouped in with uh, such a fundamentalist denomination and group of people. Um, and I remember before I went to college, and I, I'll never forget. You said to me that I needed to go off and build my own theology. I remember that was how you phrased it, and that's really just stuck with me because it was like being given permission to question for the first time in my life. Mm -hmm. It was like being given permission to see what basket holds water and what doesn't, Mm -hmm. whereas up until that point, I was never allowed to actually pour water into a basket. Yeah, Yeah, and, and perhaps for me that was saying, wow, I suddenly realized you been subjected to this doctrinal oppression and you know that's meaningless unless you really believe it i've not always been so open i suppose i mean i've been offended anytime any of your brothers come and say i don't believe in god Mm. so i took that as so you totally reject everything i believe and (laughs) i think i told you i would to our pastor one time and said, our middle son just told me he doesn't believe in God. He said, 
oh, yeah, my daughter told me that a few years ago. <laughs> and so I said to her, wow, that's a pretty big decision, don't you agree? So if, if you have any questions, talk to me about it. I thought, I didn't do that. And I wish I had, because it's entirely an individual perception and mm. choice. And if God is in control, then mm. them not believing in God is part of God's plan, is yeah. it not? Yeah, it was me rejecting God's control, I suppose. Yeah. Yes. Cool. Well, um, is there anything else that you want to add before we wrap it up? Oh, I, I'm just grateful to be part of a wonderful universe where uh, I can be the father of children who know more than I do. I mean, seriously, to to recognize that y'all come from such a different place, and our Father is in heaven, and he has ordained and blessed you with gifts. And I, I sometimes just step back and go, wow, it's really cool to be a part of this <laughs> in some shape. That's very flattering. Thank you, Dad. Mm, thank you. Thanks for doing this interview. Appreciate it. Appreciate you. Mm. Wow, that interview went places that I did not see coming. Again, I want to extend my gratitude to Greg, my dad, for being so transparent and so honest and so open and for doing the interview in the first place and for being so supportive in everything that I do. I love him very much. Yeah, I just I can't say thank you enough, Dad. If you'd like, you can support the podcast on patreon.com slash air of grievances. You can also go to facebook.com slash air of grievances to be part of the community there you can get our episodes either on soundcloud.com slash air of grievances or we're on itunes you can look us up i do also want to give a plug to eric johnson i know my dad mentioned him multiple times throughout the podcast uh, but he had a recent book come out Uh, it's not his first but it is his most recent it's called god and soul care Eric Johnson is a good friend of the family, a very, very good man. Uh, I love that guy. So, yeah, I just want to plug his book and give him an endorsement. Please feel free to give us a call on our voicemail. It's all set up and ready to go. I'd love to hear from you guys just to have some dialogue back and forth even to get your thoughts on the episodes. Uh, You can be as much of an asshole as you want. You can be a total dick. I don't care. We will still air your voicemail. So feel free to give us a call. 612-460-0364. 612-460-0364 Anyway, I'm Caleb Bro, and you've been listening to Air of Grievances. Prophecy.
a child live visually. An archetype live visually. Orchestration moves. Orchestration moves. 